podcast this week, we have the higher ground as Obi-Wan himself, Ewan McGregor, drops by to talk about his new show, Long Way Up. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast. I can't believe it wasn't cast as the new Jack Reacher. Just one foot short and 150 pounds shy. So close. So close. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast this week. I'm joined, as ever, by three colleagues of such lethal cunning over Squadcast. We're not meeting in groups of more than six, that's for sure. Not, not this weekend. Oh, no. Anyway, those colleagues of such lethal cunning are our geek queen, Helen Idaho. What's that mean? Well, that was oh, a reference to Duncan Idaho. It's a Dune reference. It's a it's Dune, a Dune reference. reference. <laughs> Christ almighty. The Everything's first a Dune reference many. this week, Chris. Come on. Oh, yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, it is Helen O'Hara. How are you? Um, I'm good. And I'm just realizing I really should have called myself after the Reverend Mother, but, you know, because she is actually called Helen. Helen Mohayim. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I know you were going to say it, Chris. I know you were going to pick me up on it. You're such a big Dune fan. And, I am uh, yeah. such, and especially after watching that trailer. I am such a big mm. fan of June and it's uh, one color. Um, <laughs> <laughs> only kidding. It's on the cover of the new empire right now. Go and pick it up in all news agents. Good and evil. Yay. June. Yay. Next up. It's always a delight to see our nerd emperor. He has returned to the podcast. Uh, no June reference in his name. He has called himself inspector Javert. It is of course, James Dyer. Yes. That's nerd Padishah emperor to you. Chris. Oh, dear God. You set this up. You should never have given him the title of emperor. It was obvious. I, I argued with you at the time. I don't time. think I did. Yes, you did. You, did. you did absolutely well, you did. did. And yeah. I, yes, yeah. I said it was a bad idea. And here we are. It is now legally enforced by my sod alcohol. I don't know. James, yeah, James revealed to me in February that he was the emperor. And I just sat in that information for seven months. <laughs> All right, Woodward. Yeah. I am a one man. <laughs> I am a one man Bob Woodward. Uh, so in other words, Bob Woodward. Anyway. Uh, the rotating fourth chair this week is occupied for the first time in a long while by uh, it's an incredible Tash. Yeah. I'm saying that, that he has the best. You can see this. We may take a screen grab and put it up on the uh, mm. on the old I think we should. Uh, Instagram after this. Uh, it's what the people in, want. In lockdown, I have had the pleasure uh, to watch Alex Godfrey's <laughs> facial hair go from you know little little acorn to mighty oak. And <laughs> look at that! What you look like you're in Reno 911 on on Quibi. Alex Godfrey, hello. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I never saw myself as a man w- with a moustache, but it's just happened. And um, it's, it's just happened. for you. I have it to just... say, I have to say, are you ready for it? Yep. It's kind of growing on me. Hey! <laughs> James, why are you are you Javert today? Just because of your your lifelong Les Mis fandom or is it because, well, also because we are reviewing Les Mis yeah. today yeah. so like, I am Inspector Javert who as we all know is the true hero of Les Mis <laughs> so you know fallen hero <laughs> uh, anyway before we get into things before we get into the show I should mention that yes there, we're, not, we're not quite on lockdown here in the UK but um, restrictions are in place uh, preventing groups of more than six or they will be as of Monday preventing groups of more than six from meeting up unless of course you're going to school or the work place or your football team or going to races or cinemas or you know it's 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 slightly unclear uh, shall we say but some people did ask what this means for the live show that we are doing on September 24th just two weeks from now I should probably get to work on planning that uh, don't you think Uh, two weeks from now at King's Place 
as part of the London Podcast Festival, King's Place, which has been our spiritual home for live shows over the last three years or so, uh, they asked us to do another live show, and we agreed. And, you know, King's Place, as with many events, venues across the country, are having a bit of a tough time at the moment. And so we're doing this to help them out and to raise money for King's Place and so they can keep going as well. So with that in mind, uh, and with the caveat that things can change, the live show is going ahead. Um, It does seem to be the restrictions are in groups of more than six. So six households or friends, groups of more than six, but a hundred people or so can be in a room. The live show will be absolutely socially distanced. Uh, we have been told that we have been, the reassurances have been made uh, for our safety and yours, of course. We will be there on the night. Team Empire will be on stage. We will be socially distanced and the venue can hold around 100, 110 or so uh, people in the audience and tickets for that are on sale right now at kingsplace.co.uk and we would love to see you there uh, safely of course uh, we would love the buzz that a live audience brings uh, but if you don't want to go to the, to see the show in person there is a solution there is a live stream of the show which you can also buy via the King's Place website, kingsplace.co.uk. And you can stream that no matter where you are in the world. And you don't have to watch the show as live. If you buy a ticket for that, you have a 72-hour window after the show to watch the live stream. And we will say as well uh, that that will be a one-off show. It will be a totally one-off show. It will not be appearing. Uh, initially, I thought I w- it was going to be that week's podcast, but it is not going to be that week's podcast. So if you want to see or hear that show, then your only options are in person at King's Place or via the live stream. And uh, we promise that'll be worth your while. So if you've never seen a live show or you have seen a live show and you want to come back and experience the Bedlam, then I would heartily recommend that. And there will be a different recording of, um, a completely different recording of the podcast up that week, which we will do earlier in the Blue Peter classic style. This is one we made earlier. So there you go, kingsplace.co.uk. But first of all, let's get into the show itself and we are up against it a bit for time this week, so we may not do the film facts section, uh, much to the oh, sadness of Helen oh, and James. Shame. I know. Oh, wow. I'm devastated. I know. Chris, just, it's, just, it's not fair. Let's see how it goes, James. If we, have enough time, much, James. if we have enough time at the end of the show, we will do the film facts section. Uh, cut to James now filibustering for the next <laughs> hour or so. Oh, sorry, guys. We don't have well, time. It's, it's a shame we're going to be talking about Dune at some point oh, in this Jesus particular episode. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You've timed this to perfection, haven't you? <laughs> Some sort of Machiavellian genius. Oh, sorry, guys. We've got a hard out. Uh, plus, the Dune Trader is out. So, we're going to start instead with the listener question. That is sacrosanct. That will always happen. And this week's listener question comes to us from Edward Llewellyn on Twitter, which is nice of him. And he asks, I've been re-watching Heat, and as Michael Mann remade it from L.A. Takedown, what film by the same director would you like to see remade this feels a lot like what films did directors fuck up which we'd like to see them take a second part at <laughs> david lynch's june <laughs> david lynch's june yes no but that would be amazing it would they, be amazing. no it wouldn't it wouldn't it would be just as terrible the second time because he's no. just not he's not the no, right no, man no, for the job that, that, he's disowned that film because it just wasn't his film really it's just is it in the same way that his 
version of Empire Strikes Back would have been an unwatchable morass of nonsense. Oh, he, I just he would know. never have made it. That's why he didn't yeah. make it. And it was Return of the Jedi. Yeah. It was Return of the Jedi, you're quite right. But David Lynch now, 2020, giving all the mo- given all the money in the world to do what he wants with June would be insane. Yes, in the worst way possible. No, but like he knew he didn't have the time or the space or the money to do it properly and he did his best, God bless him. Uh, but now maybe we could, you know, I think it, I could, I think it could work. No, I think Denis is the man. All hail Denis. Hashtag Team Denis. Uh, obviously, I'm Team Denis. I don't feel like these are contradictory <laughs> positions, honestly. No one needs a sort of 57-hour Twin Peaks to Return-esque take on Dune. I, mean, I just, Twin kill Peaks me now, feed me to a sandworm. Hours. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you see Twin Peaks Return, Jimbo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I watched a chunk of it, yes, okay. until I realised what it was, and no. Um, no, what I'm going to put forward is... J.J. Abrams, I think, should be given a second pass at the rise of Skywalker. Now, while I hate to be a one-man Reddit thread, um, it does feel a lot like you know. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of subreddit action saying J.J. should you know get a take two on this. Why? But he did it already, and it wasn't that long ago, and it wasn't very good. Yes, yes. This is what I'm saying. You know, like give him another chance to to do over. You know, a mulligan. Have another go. See if you can get it right this time. Now. This is obviously slightly relevant to news where Mm. Daisy Ridley has said that uh, a number of people, including the four of us, were considered as Ray's parents in the film. And uh, they kind of seem to have pulled Palpatine out of their ass at the 11th hour. So that, I mean, it it kind of... painful at the best of times. Maybe maybe shines a light on the the film. I mean, to be fair to JJ, he did come, he wasn't supposed to do it. It was, was, he was parachuted in at the last minute. So maybe he had a lot less time to work on this one. But I think we can all agree it's not the film we wanted it to be. And I love JJ. I think he did a great job with the Force Awakens. I believe he has a great episode nine in him. I would like to see it. Yeah, that's a good shout, actually. And and obviously her comments tie into John Boyega's comments uh, the week before. Mm. If, you, if you saw that interview in GQ, a fantastic interview. Um, it it really sounds like the film was made amid chaos and decisions were made as a result that maybe were not optimal for the characters, let's say. And hey, while that could be applied to every episode of this podcast, <laughs> well, clearly it didn't work as well for them. <laughs> I wonder what he thinks of the film, though. Maybe he felt that he was making the film he wanted to make. Maybe. Sure. <laughs> but I don't think... I don't think. The thing is that JJ, I think, like maybe Spielberg, is one of those guys who wouldn't necessarily let his ego, in that sense, get in the way of the audience to a degree. Do you know what I mean? I feel like if, knowing what he knows now, he probably would make a different film. Because he knows that that's not well, what the fans wanted. Knowing that he's made a ton of bad decisions, he would make. <laughs> yeah, kind of. All right. Like I'd, I'd also give him a do-over on on Star Trek Into Darkness, and maybe with a, you know, Star Trek Into Darkness is absolutely fine as it is. Oh my god, it is not. <laughs> I, I I will defend that film to my dying day. It really you is. Let's give alone. him a do-over in Super Eight while we're at it. It is an absolutely fine three-star film. <laughs> Don't knock it. <laughs> Let's give him a do-over in three of the five movies he's made as director. <laughs> including the best Mission Impossible. Yes, uh, that's true. That's uh, But then we did mention Spielberg like. briefly there. I do think another pass at Crystal Skull, uh, Crystal Skull, the film that, mm. of course, is not an Indiana Jones film, would uh, would maybe be worth his time. Never you can't have a second it, pass at a film you didn't have a first pass at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Um, such a shame that Hitchcock never got to remake The Man Who Knew Too Much. <laughs> he should get a third pass at it. <laughs> maybe this time he'll get it. Why Talking not? Which, I think Gus Van Sant should be made to remake Psycho. 
again. And now it is his film, right? It's, it's, that is a Gus Van Sant film called Psycho. Is, yes, yes. He should be made to do that uh, maybe every year. <laughs> Until he gets it right, damn it. <laughs> take, yeah, take out the wanking for a start. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. That's what, that's what yeah. everyone tells me before the podcast begins as well. Yeah, um, we've, so- <laughs> been, we've been trying that for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I had um I had a thought that what I would really love to see is Richard Stanley being given the chance to to make the island of Doctor Moreau the way he wanted to make it. Terrible experiments. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, maybe this doesn't really qualify because the film that was made does not have his name as director. But you know, he was thrown off. Uh, very early on in during the shoot and um, the dreams and the vision he had for that film were really interesting and really exciting and really bizarre and obviously they made it up they ended up making a complete mess of it Uh, but I think he's still sort of hung up on it all and uh, I'd love to see what he would Mm. really do with that now that he's had some success and has some currency again similarly I'd quite like Gareth Edwards to get a chance to actually direct Rogue One that would be nice (laughs) Well, yeah. Or if we're, if we're talking real fantasy stuff, Lord of Miller's Solo, I'd love to see that. Well, quite, Lord yeah. Miller's Solo, yeah, for Paul sure. Paul Verhoeven directing Arnie and Crusade, but we're, we're kind of getting yes. away, I think, from what the question <laughs> is. I mean, for example, I would love to see somehow Zack Snyder given a chance to release his version of Justice League, but I don't It'll know if that's ever going to happen. Never it's happen. never going to happen. <laughs> that said, there is an argument to be made for Zack Snyder being allowed to redo all of the DCEU films and do them well. That would be uh, perhaps a good thing to do. Well, you. you should probably change your name, identity. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go into hiding. They will find you. I would be interested. In, I mean, it doesn't work now timeline-wise at all, obviously, but I would be interested in seeing... Um, Louis Leterrier having another crack at the Incredible Hulk. What with Ruffalo? Bring Ruffalo in and redo Incredible Hulk. <sighs> I don't. Yeah, look, it's not, obviously it's not going to happen for for a billion reasons. But there was, I'm, I still am convinced there was maybe half of a good film in there trying to get out, and it was yeah. sort of stampeded. And I'd like to see what that might have been. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's a good shout. Yeah, there, there is a film. There's a there's a great film in there somewhere. Yeah, buried very deep. Very, I mean, it's deep, <laughs> very deep, deep within. Very. Very deeply buried, but <laughs> yeah, buried under a lot of CG. It yeah. is. Yeah. It is. I'm yeah. surprised no one's mentioned, uh, perhaps topically, The Godfather Part Three, which of course is getting a chance to be kind of redone to an extent, isn't it? As mm. as is Rocky Four. Yeah, I mean Rocky Four doesn't need redoing, but The Godfather Part Three arguably maybe oh, we could do with it. Yeah, we finessing. haven't talked about that on the podcast. Okay, so there, there's no, two, we haven't. and this is a very very good opportunity to do so. And then I should also explain exactly what LA Takedown is in relation to Heat, in case people don't know. <laughs> but so first of all, the first one that was announced was Stallone has announced that he is going to do a director's cut of Rocky Four. Now you might say to yourself, "Hang on." But Stallone's the director of Rocky IV, so therefore isn't the cut that's been out there since 1987, isn't that the director's cut? And apparently, no. So Stallone is going to redo the director's cut. I don't know what great bits of footage are out there that that weren't put into the the movie in the first place, whether there's more of him running up a mountain, whether there's more of Apollo Creed, you know, before he dies. Who knows? But the one thing that Stallone has said is that Paulie's robot is going to be excised from the film. I, I mean, mean, people are going to be devastated. Poor old Polly's robot. He's it's it's gone. I have a feeling that he is just trying to remove all the ridiculousness from this film, which would seem to. I mean, what, what are you left with? Seriously, impact the runtime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's left? Just, his director's cut is basically like twelve minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, don't diss Rocky Four, Chris. You love it. 
just give us a pep talk. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Rocky Four is really, really fun. But what's he going to do? Is he going to make it more serious? Is he going to add another montage that's 25 minutes long? What's he going to do? I think he is going to make it more serious. I didn't see the last Rambo film, but from everything I heard, it was deadly serious and deadly awful I'm I, oh, I, I, hateful I, yeah I, I mean I guess he's in in this day and age with all you know with R-rated films being more successful and I wonder if he's just going to try and make this more somber and take all the nonsense out of it I mean it, it sounds about what he's doing and there's a tonal disconnect between Rocky 4 and Creed 2 and Creed 2 is is a direct sequel of sorts to yeah. Rocky mm. Four mm. and Creed Two yeah. is much more serious, and Rocky Four, as we said, has a bit with a robot and really cheesy eighties music and loads and loads of montages. The film may be one giant montage. I'm still not entirely sure on that. In a way, all films are uh, one giant montage. So, oh, aren't they really? Don't when, they? when you think about it, yeah, really? isn't it? Mm. Mm. Isn't it? Mm. Mm. Magnificent small boys, choppers of goalposts in the park, mm. flying, mm. isn't it? Um, I so don't yes. even know what's happening at this point. <laughs> Rocky IV, uh, he might be re-editing it so it falls in line more with Creed II, potentially. But also, this week, or last week, Francis Ford Coppola announced that he is going to have one more go at Godfather Part Three, uh, And it's going to be called Godfather Part Three, comma, Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, uh, which is... Originally, the title of the movie—that's what they wanted to call it back in 1990. Uh, not the coda bit, but the um, the death of Michael Corleone is what they wanted to call it. And uh, again, this is an interesting one. He kind of did the same thing, didn't he? Where whenever the Godfather and Godfather Part Two, he re-edited them into chronological order. Um, mm. I think it was called the Godfather Saga, and it aired on that was, TV. Yeah, that was a yeah, bad experiment. Years and years and years and years and years ago. Uh, and so he's going back, he's now in his 80s, Coppola, and he is, he's going back in and he's fiddling with this. And you wonder again, what footage is out there that wasn't in the first one? Unless you can somehow rewrite the script, get Robert Duvall to accept an offer to play Tom Hagen, make Tom Hagen the major player that he was meant to be in the, in the original movie. And then that completely changes the movie. And then maybe if we're being uncharitable, replace Sofia Coppola with someone else. Hmm. So you get the mocap suits out. I don't know what you can do to this. Winona Ryder was originally cast in that role, wasn't she? Mm. She was, she kind of still looks the same, I have to say. If we're looking at tonal shifts, maybe he's doing the opposite of Stallone. And maybe he's going to replace every instance of (laughs) Internationale Mobiliari with Nando's. I thought you were going to say he's going to have Paulie's robot. With a robot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paulie's <laughs> robot will return as well. Yes, clearly that's going to happen. I would genuinely love that if at the end of the movie, you know, Michael Corleone is going, it's not what I wanted. And, you know, there's a robot. <laughs> going, Michael, happy birthday, Michael. I didn't want this robot. Get this robot out of here. And the robot kills Michael Corleone, hence oh, yes. it does, yeah. Hence Death the title. The, and the, oh, oh, and the robot's called Coda. Or <laughs> mm. the robot just replaces Joey Zaza. <laughs> Leave the gun, take the cannoli. No, wait, I got it wrong. <laughs> Whatever it is. What's the word? What's the line? It is anyway. Cannoli. Leave the gun, I take the in America. Oh, I want to see that now. I want to see the entire Godfather uh, saga <laughs> remade. Look what they did to my boy. Look how they massacred my boy. That would be that would be tremendous. Get on a coppola. Anyway. Cool. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. But do you think Godfather 3 can be saved? 
Yes, because it's fine as it is. Like it's not. It's nowhere near on a level with the first two, but it's not a bad film by any stretch. I will. I maintain that it's 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 much maligned. Mm. Nah. Clearly, that's <laughs> just a hum. Clearly, that's Alex. popular. One of my more popular opinions. <laughs> It just doesn't, it didn't ever need to exist. That's the problem with it, isn't it? No film needs to exist, though. No, but decades later, or whatever it was, actually wasn't. It seemed like decades, it was about 15 years later, but it mm. just didn't, when it finally came around, it didn't have the weight and the currency of those other two. It seemed too late and it didn't have the power of it. And I mean, look, James might be right. It might be, a, it's a perfectly serviceable crime mm. film, but it doesn't feel of a piece with the other two. So Yeah, it's not an all-time cinematic classic, certainly, but it's a, it's a decent yeah. film. Mm. I need to go back and re-see it. You do? I do, yeah, I really do. But maybe I'll wait for the uh, the coda, the death of Michael Corleone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me <laughs> back in. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we should get back to the question. Yeah, we should. Ah. Uh, so, I said I would explain what LA Takedown was in relation to heat. So, years before Michael Mann became Michael Mann, essentially. So in between Manhunter and Last of the Mohicans, there's a six-year period where he mainly works in TV. And one mm. of the things he does for TV is he directs a film called, he writes and directs a film called L.A. Takedown, which is literally a shit heat. It is a version of heat. It's a TV movie. It is far less ambitious than heat in its scope and its scale. It is 97 minutes long. It has none of the same actors except one, Sandra Berkeley appears in both versions. Uh, it, it stars the aptly named Scott Plank as Vincent Hanna <laughs> and Alex MacArthur as not Neil McCauley, but Patrick McLaren. But otherwise, it is the same story. and uh, A lot of the same scenes as well. And then six years later, Warner Brothers said, hey, would you like loads and loads of money to make this with De Niro and Pacino and Fal Kilmer and add an extra hour and a half onto it and make it this huge, sprawling crime epic? Uh, and Michael Mann went, yes, absolutely. And so he took his bad film and then turned it into a masterpiece. So that's what LA Takedown is. If you have never seen it, check it out. It's terrible. <laughs> absolutely terrible. <laughs> He also, obviously, he made he remade Miami Vice as well. I mean, he's remade his he own did. thing twice. I mean, he could he could do with remaking Miami Vice, quite frankly. Again, hey, Again. I, no, no, yeah. no, no. I will go to bat for the Miami Vice movie all day while we're on terrible opinions. Um, if you're defending Godfather Three, I will defend Miami Vice. I think that movie is Look, there's terrific. There's a rule. There's a there's a fundamental rule of filmmaking that it breaks, and the rule of filmmaking that it breaks is this: you don't make Colin Farrell a blonde. So I just like it's it's basic, you know. It's, <laughs> Unless it's Oliver Stone with, learned his it's, peril, it's up there with remember to turn the camera on and make sure that the boom is out of shot. Like you just don't make Colin Farrell blonde. You could put Colin Farrell in a bag; he'd still be sexy. I didn't say he wasn't sexy. I said you don't make him blonde. He'd be fucking gorgeous. What about if you make yeah, him you're enormous and unrecognisable and put him in put him in a Batman film? Yeah, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm potentially upset by that, but I'm I'm waiting and holding fire, you know. Oliver Stone, I think released four different cuts of Alexander, Alexander the Great, I think. <laughs> the last one's called Alexander, this time we've got it right, honest. <laughs> no, I, th I think there was the original release, there was the director's cut. I think there was one maybe called the longer or the extended version. And then he did make the final cut, which I don't think he's done another one since then, but maybe he will. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. It never, it's never final, is it? I, I, I can't. Have you seen, have you all seen that film? I've seen it. I haven't seen all the versions. I I don't hate it. That's Helen's poster quote right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also didn't hate it, but neither do I have motivation to go back and see it again, especially yeah, other versions. 
I it's funny that the films that some directors cling on to and keep insisting on trying to get us to see again, often the ones that we didn't care about in the first place. Mm. <laughs> Something that we, I think, have touched on in this podcast in the past on other questions. See, see, my filibustering is going particularly well, I think. So it is. Far, it's going really well. Is the, you know, the special edition things, you know, obviously the obvious special editions, but so many films you wouldn't think of have alternate cuts available mm. on DVD, like Dark City. Did you know there's a director's cut of Dark City? I bet you fucking didn't. I bet Chris um, did. <laughs> which loses the voiceover at the beginning and has a different start, and it's, you know, they change bits to it there. But so many of these films have had alternate versions, which was obviously studio cash-in on DVD. But in some of these cases, it's just they put in a few extra scenes, it's rubbish. But in some of these cases, directors have had a chance to fix things that they got wrong. Mm. Um, you know, like, mm. there, there are so many... And when we did the, the Alien ranking, we talked about the alternate versions of Alien Resurrection, the alternate versions of Alien 3, which improved the films. While we're on this subject, when Ridley Scott was able to revisit Kingdom of Heaven and stick, what was it, another 50 minutes nearly back into mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Changed yeah. it from a very flawed three-star film to a really solid four-star film. So he finally got to make the film he wanted to make. Kingdom of Heaven, the extended cut, is brilliant. Well, D David Ayer is lobbying to uh, follow in Zack Snyder's footsteps and put out a director's cut of Suicide Squad, isn't he? Yeah. Which no one has <laughs> got I too mean, excited about. Yeah, it's... it's, it's... <laughs> I mean, it couldn't couldn't be much worse, could it? Like, it, it might be interesting, so. And McGee this week said that he wants to do a director's cut, that he has a, a director's cut of Terminator Salvation, <sighs> which he's now trying to, you know, maybe drum up some interest in. But there was nothing good there, though. There was nothing no, there good. Was, there was Christian Bale's rant against the uh, that, that crew member, wasn't there? They should include that in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking distracting! It's fucking distracting! Oh, good for you! La -di -da -di -da -di -da. They should just include that in the movie. That'd be amazing. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, uh. truly this John Connor is a leader of men. <laughs> yes, why has he gone British all of a sudden as well? <laughs> why is he yelling at that person? Anyway. Chris, would you like to see the great Sam Raimi able to take another bite of the Spider-Man 3 apple? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Evil Dead 2. I was about to leap through the screen. That's right. Make it as good as Army of Darkness. Fuck no. you. Uh, he, he made Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2 is great. And Spider-Man 3, let's be honest, is a shit show. No, so... the, the, the Raimi film I want to see him get a chance to redo would be Crime Wave, which was okay. his, his second movie and is not particularly good and had all kinds of studio interference uh, right down to the studio going, hey, why would you want to cast this charismatic, good-looking guy called Bruce Campbell as the lead uh, when we can get this completely and utterly forgettable non-entity uh, instead? I can't even remember the guy who's who's in the movie. But it's got some really, really lovely touches and flourishes and stylistic flourishes, as you would expect from Raimi, but otherwise it's a bit... Uh... Didn't the Coens write that film, or am I confused? They co-wrote it. Cohen, the Cohen wrote it. A Cohen co-wrote it. Yeah, because Joel Cohen got a start on Evil Dead. He was assistant editor on the Evil Dead. Uh, but yeah, Crime Wave is one of those ones where he just, you know. But then again, the fact that it flopped terribly and he had a terrible experience prompted him to make Evil Dead 2 as his next movie. So therefore, we perhaps owe Crime Wave a debt. Do we Who know? knows? Yeah, we do. It, you know, it, was, it led to the making of the greatest movie of all time. So we're, we're all, we're oh, all very, very happy. I did not know that. Which many people, many people mistake that for a remake itself, obviously, which it is not. Yes. What if James Cameron, the reason that he's taking so long to make Avatar 2 is because he is stealth remaking Piranha 2, the <laughs> the spawning or the flying killers, depending on, I think, which, which territory uh, you're watching it in. Uh, so that's, in theory, Jim Cameron's first movie, although I always discount it. It's kind of not really, is it? Because it's not really, like, but it kind of is. He didn't start on it really. and he didn't finish on it. So. But I think they still gave him the credit, didn't they? So 
or go. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those ones. It's like, do you count Fistful of Fingers when you're talking about Edgar Wright's filmography? He does, mm. as he's yeah. corrected me many, many times. <laughs> I go, Sean the Dead was your first movie. And he goes, no, Fistful of Fingers. <laughs> I go, yep, okay, fair enough. Uh, but it was anyway, basically a, studio, a student film. Yeah, anyway, that's us talk about Sean the Dead. Um, <laughs> and it was basically a student film. So do you count that? Do you count Piranha yeah. 2? Okay. Yeah. Well, we know that Avatar 2 has a big underwater component. So what I'm saying is, what if he's just stealth remaking Piranha 2, only with like blue cat things? Maybe he's stealth remaking The Abyss, which is a great film. <gasps> it is a great film. Life's Abyss and Then You Die. Is that the one Jim Cameron film that's not available readily? There's certainly not a 4K version mm. of it, but I don't... Is there a proper HD version of it? I'm not sure. I think it's been on... It's been broadcast in HD, but it's never been made available as a Blu-ray, to the best of my knowledge. You could yeah, have that wrong, but I, think I don't I've, think it I've has. I've only got the DVD. He, he doesn't yeah. love that film, is that right? He, well, then he never got to finish it. Like the ending, like again, that's another one where the mm. special edition gives you the proper ending of the film, which you right. don't get initially because they wouldn't let him finish the effect shots, which he wanted to do for these tidal waves. Mm. But um, yeah, it's great. But then that's just as a kind of like a really sort of claustrophobic, like character-driven film. That, it's great. Michael Bean is fantastic in that. So good in that. Mm. So, so good. And uh, with a tash that rivals Alex's for magnificence, Almost, I have to say. yeah. Anyway, so that's it for this week's... No, no I think I'm, we're throwing done. In, I'm throwing in another one. I'm oh, making no. sure this fact section does not turn up. I'm going to say <laughs> Waterworld. I would like to see Kevin Costner have another go at Waterworld because I like that film and it is deeply, deeply flawed and I suspect it could be done better. I don't care about seeing that film again, but I do <laughs> love the fact that um, I think it was Peter Berg talked about when he was making uh, Battleship <laughs> that he got a call out of the blue from Kevin Costner going, can I come in and talk to you about shooting on water? And literally came in and told him everything that went wrong on Waterworld and what he needed to do to avoid it. And I think he does this with everyone who's making <laughs> A water film now and he's like learn from my mistakes people well, it's like Let a movie people are, people are talking in a pub and go, I can't wait to shoot this movie on water and then you hear a voice in the darkness going I wouldn't do that if I were you and <laughs> camera, <laughs> camera pans across and there's old grizzled Kevin Costner 95 years old in the corner going I remember once we did shoot on the water for the water world and things did go wrong and we did drown the lead actress and had to replace her with a puppet for the last six weeks that was terrible as your lawyer, let me be clear, that didn't happen on Waterworld. <laughs> I think it's really important. Those aren't so. my words, Helen. Those are the words of imaginary 95-year-old Kevin Costner many years from now. So, wow. sue him, having not made, me. What? So in your, in your theory, this is 95-year-old Kevin Costner having remade Waterworld and drowned the lead actress on the yes, remake. Yes, obviously. I'm not saying they drowned Jean Triplehorn. Obviously, okay. she went on to do many things. Many uh, things. I'm sure we could name any of them. She's right flourishing now. even now. Yes. Even now she's flourishing alive and well, lungs unclogged with water. She is totally and utterly fine. Anyway, if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast as... And why would you? <laughs> why would you? Yeah. As Edward Llewellyn found to his cost... All you need to do is get in touch with us on Twitter. That's it mainly these days. Uh, just respond to one of my panicked tweets of a Thursday or slide into my DMs or just respond to any of my hilarious and amusing tweets uh, with a question. Uh, we will put <laughs> it into the hat for consideration. Uh, I am, of course, at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. Okay, so that was quite a long listener question section. Oh, well done, Jimbo. Your filibustering is working. The fact section is dead for another week, but it will be back next week. It's not going to take a three-week break, so guys, get yourselves ready. But now it is time to talk about movie news, and I guess there's only one place to start, and that is, of course, 
with the news that we have a new Jack Reacher. It happened last Friday, and it is happening, and it is a man uh, who's quite tall, but does he have fists the size of supermarket turkeys, or whatever the hell it is? Uh, it is Alan Richson, who can be seen in things like uh, Titans, apparently, and is six foot three inches tall, so two inches shorter than Reacher, so therefore I've immediately discounted him. Uh, but this is for the new Jack Reacher Amazon Prime show that they're going to do, which is a, the first series or season, if you're American, is going to be an adaptation of Killing Floor, the first book by Lee Child. Jimbo, as a Reacher fan, to rival myself, what do you make of this? My initial thought when I saw him was he felt too young for me. But as you did point out in our texting, he's what? He, how old is he? 37, did you say? 37. It's like Dennis. Oh, in shit. 37, Holy which you, you stated without backing up with fat, but I just took your word for it, that that was roughly the age of Reacher during Killing Floor. Reacher was born in 1960. Uh, Killing Floor takes place in okay, 1997. Well. Oh, it's perfect. That seems then. reasonably accurate. Um, so actually, then my one major complaint is not really a complaint. So maybe he's spot on age-wise. Yeah. Um, I would need to see him in the flesh. I would have to gaze <laughs> up at his, his the slab of a man that he is to really get a feel for whether or not he is Jack Reacher. He needs to hit me with a scything elbow, I think. <laughs> Stop um, a bullet with his bare chest. <laughs> indeed. I'd need to shoot him in the chest with a twenty-two caliber pistol and see what happens. And if indeed his peck stopped the bullet, then yes, he can have the part. If not, it's a bit like, a bit like the Salem Witch Trials. This is how he got the part, precisely. They, they killed everyone else who uh, auditioned for the role. <laughs> As, yeah, the, their insurance bill is really high on yeah. that casting yeah. process. I, I like very much the first Tom Cruise uh, Reacher, uh, directed by Chris McQuarrie, of course. And you can listen to the McQuarrie Spoiler Special if you subscribe to our Spoiler Special channel, folks. But I wasn't a fan of the second one. No. This one, yeah, it looks like this is obviously someone who... who Hughes closer to the Reacher of the book than perhaps mm -hmm. Tom Cruise did. Uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic about this one, I have to mm. say. I just hope that they they adhere closely to the books and don't give Reacher a team of amusing sidekicks, as is the wont of these of these shows. That's true. He should be, by definition, a lone wolf. Just him, his toothbrush and his passport and nothing <laughs> else going on. And his, his ATM card, otherwise he ATM wouldn't be, able to, he wouldn't be able, yes, able to withdraw money and it'd be terrible. We'd have to watch him waste away. Yeah, I think he'd be very, right. very sad. Very sad. Um, yeah, I'm looking for. I think I feel like TV's not a bad place for Reacher in a weird way, just because. I, I, well, maybe because I binged the books as a series. I, th I think I read the first. I don't know, fifteen ago. So um, it feels to me like an ongoing saga that belongs on TV rather than the big screen. And I think that kind of you know, detective-y action movie that, you know, that Reacher kind of occupies does work better on TV these days than on than in the movies. I feel like it's not the kind of thing you tend to see on the big screen so often, you know? And that that's why you get things like the car chase, which is a really good car chase in Reacher, but it just didn't feel like Reacher. Um, so that's what you can kind of maybe dispense with a little bit in TV. You can kind of keep it closer to the style of action in the books than, than mm. the movies did perhaps. And of course, the, the movies, by their very nature, needed to be more commercial, and mm. so they were PG-13. And if anyone's read a Reacher, they'll, they'll know that <laughs> he's not afraid to get a little blood in his hands. And Killing Floor, in particular, is... Well, not in particular, because I think it killed about 475 people in the last one, Blue Moon. But uh, Killing Floor is really gruesome, and he kills a whole bunch of people in very, very messy ways. And hopefully... Not that I'm obviously a fan of on-screen violence. <laughs> uh, God, no, but you're not you, No, of Chris. course not. Of course not. I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> 
<laughs> what? Uh, but hopefully that can do that aspect of Reacher justice. Mm. Although weirdly enough, never says the F word is never uttered in any of the Reacher books. Huh. So he's, he's okay with slitting people's throats from ear to ear, but uh, or, or scything an elbow into someone's face and caving their cheekbones in or crunching their noses into their brains or punching a guy in the chest so hard his heart stops, which happens in one of the books. <laughs> but the F word, no, 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 no. No time for well, that. You, there's got to be standards. There's got to be standards. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has their limits. I feel like Jack Ryan's working really, really well on TV. And I think Jack Reacher is is of that same type in a way, you know. So TV might actually give him more space to do what he's good at. Although Jack Ryan did sort of stray from the path, I think, a little bit in season two, which I thought was quite boring. That's fair. Yeah. And speaking of Reachers or former Reachers, um, I think we should talk about the first day of filming on Mission Impossible 7. Mm. <laughs> it's much like my first day at work. Yeah, do you remember your first day at your new job? <laughs> you come in, you know, you're you're given a, a brief tour of the office. You get to meet your workmates. Uh, you maybe have a bit, bit of a chat with HR. Maybe there's a contract to be signed. Maybe there isn't. Um, you know, here's a coffee machine. Here's a printer, that sort of stuff. Oh, and, uh, and here's your motorbike. And there's the massive ramp and runway. And you're just going to ride off that. You'll be falling into a, a massive uh, ravine. And there'll be a parachute and you'll be fine. What? Sorry? Excuse me? What? <laughs> So that was basically Tom Cruise's first day on Mission Impossible 7. The mm. the maniac uh, drove a motorbike. It was intentional, by the way. <laughs> he didn't just, he, he didn't just <laughs> add lib this. Um, so he drove a motorbike off a huge ramp that they built in Norway and then fell off the motorbike, well, or let the motorbike go. And then you think, oh my God, Tom Cruise is going to die. Genuinely, there's footage of it. And I, even though I know he's okay, my heart is in my mouth. And then a parachute comes up, very much the spy who loved me. Sadly, not with the uh, Union Jack on it. Um, you know, not for Brexit reasons, but for Bond reasons. And uh, then he, then he's he's okay after that. That's the first day of filming. Jesus H Christ! Start as you mean to go on, Chris. None of this pussyfooting around, easing yourself in gradually. Just boom, do it. Yeah, and we're we're, all, we're assuming it's Tom Cruise for reals, right? I mean, it hasn't been. I yeah. mean, it was yeah. It was was it? Le- it looked like leaked footage. What do was think, it, do we know? Who knows? They might they might be doing the same thing, but with because um, they they did that didn't they with the uh, the A four hundred sequence from from Rogue Nation where right. you know word got out that it was him, so they just released footage of him being strapped to the outside of the plane as it as it took off and landed. Mm. And even then, people mm. won't believe that it's him. They'll still say stunt double. So they'll still say face replacement. But apparently, it is him. The, th- the thing is, a stunt like that, you have to. It, it, presumably, he would have practiced that and rehearsed it, so yeah. would have done it like mm. a few times. Yeah, which is even more interesting. Maybe, maybe that was the rehearsal. <laughs> yes, mm. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> we're good. Yeah. We're good to go. We're going straight to the dress, Tom. Straight to the dress. Yeah. Sorry, Tom. We forgot to put film in the camera. Can you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how many times did he do the takeoff? It was three or four, right? At least. Really? Yeah. There wasn't. It wasn't one take deal. Oh my god! I mean, he did the oh the takeoff the A four hundred yeah and that was eight yeah. times, yeah. eight times, which is just crazy, you know. So, but I, I genuinely I am worried about this, and I've 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 talked to Macquarie about this on the podcast before. Tom Cruise is nearly sixty, and I know that his body doesn't work in the way that our bodies work, yeah. and I know that he can still kick my ass even though he is <clears throat> my some years my senior. Uh, but at a certain point. The reflexes begin to dim. And basically what I'm saying is don't kill Tom Cruise and look after him and um, don't squash him flat. 
that's that's all. Yes, I can get behind that as your lawyer. That's Maybe that's one of the reasons why they're doing these two films back to back, though, just to get it all in while the reflexes are still operational. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> God, but I'm, I'm just I, like imagine, imagine that you're just you're the director of that movie. You're, you're, so you're Macquarie watching that, and you 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 have absolute faith in Tom Cruise because he's Tom Cruise. But equally, on the last movie, he broke his ankle, and you had to like shut the thing down for for a few weeks. And then you're watching him getting onto a motorbike, and you're going, "Oh my God, is there? Is, what if the parachute doesn't work? What if there's a bit of wind and it blows him off the bike, or you know, there's oh the back of parachute doesn't work, or presumably they had some sort of mat down there as well that he would because he was." Descending it quite a right, but yeah, just oh dear lord, just just take care of him. We only have one Tom Cruise, mm. Tom Cruise, notwithstanding, of course. I I have long said that the the person we actually need to interview for these films is the insurer. I would genuinely be fascinated to know <laughs> the conversations that go into making a Tom Cruise action movie. Well, I get, yeah, but Tom Cruise produces these films, so he can he can throw that in the bin and do what he wants. I guess make it make his own insurance deals that allow him to to um. To risk death, unless he signs like a dozen waivers. Yeah, I'm just fascinated to know what the uh, what the premiums are compared to the average person. Just you know, there's a conversation yeah. to be had. That's all. Chris, I'm can you ask um, Macquarie what the premiums are? <laughs> of course, of course, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it right away. God, can you imagine an interview with Tom Cruise's insurer? He would just be like this. <laughs> <laughs> Just this haunted figure <laughs> cackling like the Joker. <laughs> anyway, it is time for James and Helen. Alex, I think you and I could take the next five to ten minutes off. Uh, it's time for James and Helen to talk about the trailer for Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which finally Woo! dropped this week. It did. It did. Although Helen and I saw that trailer some time ago, so we did get a, a bit of a leg up on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very good, isn't it? It's really very good. Did it make you feel excited, Chris? Did you feel the sand beneath your feet? I thought it looked fine. It looks good. It's clearly well made. But then Blade Runner 2049 was well made. Boring as hell, but well made. No, it was not, you you fool. Uh, no, this was excellent. I specifically like that the still that a lot of people, and which we've gone with on the website from this, is Chalamet looking none more emo with so like emo. his shaggy hair, eyeliner, and a knife all in black. It's brilliant. Yeah. But yes, I, I thought this was great. I love the look of it. I love the feel of it. I love the chunky, if, if redundant, Atreides armor. Um, I like the ornithopters that look like dragonflies. I, flew I like one the of those. big ass worm. Did, well, Helen, when you say you flew one... I mean, I sat in the pilot seat and I made the pedals go and the levers go. So, <laughs> close as you're going to get, James. Close as you're going to yeah, get. I mean, you've come closer to an ornithopter than I have, so, you it know, was awesome. that's fair. Um, yeah, no, I, th I thought it was it was magic. It was... Uh, I think So, the one we saw was a rough cut. There wasn't a huge number of changes, I don't think. No, not really. Um, and, and it was good that they kept... I wasn't sure that they'd keep in the sort of the money shot of the, of the sandworm at the end, um, to which the internet's collective reaction seems to have been, <laughs> bum... Um, <laughs> Fair enough, though. I mean, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. I do get it. But I'm yeah. not sure there's any other way to do a realistic sort of worm mouth. Um, I don't mind. I don't mind the kind of petaled look that David mm. Lynch was. It's the one good decision he made when making that film. Uh, the petaled mouth of the sandworm actually isn't too bad. It's actually not not terrible, but this one's good. Is it described in the books as anus-like, or is this? Uh... <laughs> yes, it specifically says a giant bum hole emerged from the desert <laughs> and consumed well, the no, spice harvester. There's no, there's no talk about petals in in the book. No, so this is I probably. 
closer. And and I know yeah. that he and uh, Patrice Vermette, who's his production designer, worked like for they told us in a previous interview for like a year on this design. So they were trying to get something really organic and really. Hmm. Were there real a looking. lot of cats on set? Apparently, for yeah. inspiration for <laughs> there were actually some cats. Yeah, on this set. is the but, this is the reverse of the cats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, yeah, kind of is the bumhole cat. Yeah. Bumhole cat of cats. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm 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 super hyped. Uh, James did a very good trailer breakdown, which unlike some other trailer breakdowns on the, the web that I saw doesn't have any huge errors in it. Um, there's no real excuse for getting errors in something that's you know has been around for decades. Well, yeah, but, but some people have made some assumptions which are, as far as I can tell, wrong. So I'm mm. not. I don't want to name names because I don't want to shame other journalists. But there are some trailer breakdowns out there that are wrong right now. It's worth pointing out that, and I'm not going to explicitly point it out, but there is a big old spoiler in the trailer, oh, which seemed a like a very yeah. odd inclusion. I guess I, I watched it and had no idea what was going on. I mean, it's probably a spoiler if you know what happens in the first place. Perhaps. Maybe so, I, perhaps. Yeah. I didn't feel like anything was being spoiled. I um, But it's interesting, their attitude to spoilers, because there, there were a few things... In the uh, in the feature that I thought might be spoilers, and then people talked about it quite happily in their interviews. So I was like, okay, fine, I guess. Um, people also criticised the trailer yesterday for sort of adhering too closely to the blockbuster trailer model. You know, big noise, ominous phrases. You know, big Giant action scene hole. at the end. Yeah. Um, but I feel like if you're trying to sell something as complicated and as weird as Dune, yeah. I'm not sure you have another option on that. And I feel like mm. this trailer, yes, it does hew quite closely to that blockbuster, you know, format. But I don't, I don't see what else you can do. I don't think you can go weird with something that's already weird. Yeah, but also the, the tra trailers are designed to get the most amount of people into a cinema. Yeah, <laughs> and it's marketing. It's literally marketing. Yeah, and the directors have nothing to do with them, more or less. No. Well, so I guess some yeah, do. Bit, depending yeah, on, if you're Christopher Nolan, I think it's a very different story. But uh, in uh, but no, I agree with Helen. Like this, this film is a hard sell. The book is unbelievably dense, mm. and it is fucking weird. And you know, and it, it you know, it, it speaks volumes of the fact that David Lynch went in there, and we were discussing this earlier. It's like David Lynch made Dune didn't make it particularly weird because it was already incredibly mm. weird. So it just you didn't notice just the Lynchian aspects as much. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like oh, this is fine. This well, is this like fun. a documentary. <laughs> will, will this work from from what you guys no I haven't read the books mm. uh, I believe it's as designed to work as a standalone film if there isn't a sequel for whatever honestly, reason honestly yeah. I, 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 I don't I think it will be unsatisfying if they never make the second mm. half of this. I'd be yeah, I'd be disappointed. But there is a break. There is a break point in the book where you have told a story. Without you, massive cliffhangers, though. Yeah, I, there's an element. There's enough of an element of cliffhanger that you're going to want the sequel, but there's not so much that you're going to feel like you didn't see a story. Do you okay. know what I mean? So mm. I, I hope I'm hopeful that where I think they've broken it, and I'm I'm pretty sure of where, but you know I don't want to make any huge assumptions. But mm. I think there is a place there that you can make that work, and that's mm. that's what I'm kind of hoping they've done. So yeah, we we shall see. I, I do feel like um, pretty much what you saw of Zendaya in this trailer is about all of her scenes in this film. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, don't let that be the only reason that you see it. But really, I mean, if you're not attracted to at least two members of that cast, I, I feel like you might be dead. So <laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk about the casting? Because uh, the, the, by and large, Twitter received the trailer rapturously yesterday. Mm. But um, some people did point out the fact that, that this is a a novel uh, in which Frank Herbert. I keep wanting to say James Herbert, but Frank Herbert. Very much not. Yeah. Now he actually probably would have bumholes with teeth in his in his books. 
<laughs> but uh, Frank Herbert, you know, was inspired by Middle Eastern culture and Islamic culture when putting this mm-hmm. together. And the the cast in this does perhaps not reflect that, um, shall we say? You know, it's Timothy Chalamet, it's Rebecca Ferguson, it's well, Timothy Chalamet is different, like, and he and Rebecca Ferguson as well, because they're off world; they're not from Arrakis mm. themselves. But right. certainly, the Fremen, I think, are inspired by Middle Eastern cultures. That said, they're never, I, to the best of my knowledge, identified as people of color in the books. It's certainly not uncommon for you know science fiction and fantasy novels to to sort of co-opt you know earthbound cultures for their own needs and just take bits of them from here and there. It's not as if he was transplanting a culture he was just using kind of you know nomadic desert culture tropes um so yeah i mean i totally get in my head i had always seen the fremen as being sort of more middle eastern looking yeah i mean it is a white savior narrative and i guess the only way to avoid that would have been to make you know the the atreides people of color whatever race you want to have Mm. they have to be different i think or looking ideally from the fremen i think that's the main thing so if you make the fremen you know middle eastern north african or mina i think as the as the acronym goes then whatever the atreides are they should be different to that Mm. so yeah i do do think you can, can absolutely have a discussion about whitewashing about white white savior the good thing I think about this film, and it's a huge budget, you know, m- major, major movie, is that it is at least a science fiction movie with a minority white cast. Uh, that it is mostly people of color in the cast, and that's among the Atreides retainers and so on as well. That's in the Harkonnen family as well. It's not just the Fremen. People like people like obviously like Jason Momoa, Zendaya herself. Uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson as Thufir Hawat, people like Shannon Duncan Brewster, a character who's been gender swapped and race swapped uh, from the book, at mm. least. Well, her race isn't discussed in the book or his race isn't discussed. Chen Chang as well. Uh, Chen Chang as well, yeah. Um, so it's it's not a, a film that has a majority white cast, which is good. Um, but you're right, we can absolutely have a discussion about, about the race in uh, questions. You look at Lynch's iterations and all the Harkonnens aren't just white, they are ginger. It's a very specific <laughs> take on that. That's They're true. the baddies, right? They are the baddies, they yeah. Are. Super bad. No, it's interesting. I just wanted to see what you guys thought about that because I mm. saw there was a, a discourse happening on, on Twitter yesterday about that. It's relevant to kind of the broader conversation about the Oscars this week as well, isn't it? Mm. Uh, so the Oscars announced their new representation and inclusion standards for best picture contenders. They're actually adopting standards here that have already been in place for BFI funding. So if you want to get funding from the BFI, you already have to meet two out of these four standards. And Mm. then that was already adopted by BAFTA initially for the Best Picture and Best British Picture categories. And it's now been widened, I think, to all categories at BAFTA. So the Oscars are very much sort of following in the footsteps of and slightly um, adapting to American culture as opposed to British culture, you know, slightly different ethnic minority groups and so on to consider. I think this is a very low bar to pass. So you Mm. can pass, for example, by having one lead character of color. You can pass, for example, by having, uh, for one of the other categories, by having, you know, some interns from minority groups. Um, You can pass by having two heads of department who are women and one who is a person of color. And I mean, the heads of department include casting directors and costume, which are already female dominated. Mm. You know, there are, it is not a difficult thing I think to to ask that films meet these standards, and they are not onerous. They are not. Um, I think in in contrast to art, they do not discriminate. I don't think against anyone because you have the option of meeting only two of them. You don't have to meet all four. Um, and it's a really low bar. I just mm. want to s- stress that it's a very very easy test to pass. So I think this is probably a good thing. Overall. Yeah, I'm. 
I'm with you. The the comments on the Academy's Instagram post were an absolute bin fire, as you would mm-hmm. imagine. Lots of people claiming, you know, social justice warriors are ruining cinema. The Oscars are cancelled because they're no longer judging films on the merits of the films, but just on quote unquote woke criteria. And it's like, okay, fine, sure, that's a rep- that's a, uh, certainly an interpretation, but none of that is true. Like, and, and this seems to me more than anything else as being establishing a framework for sort of best practice in the process of making movies, which is like, you know. Try not to have like a wildly Aryan crew. I don't think that's hugely like onerous thing to to look at. But I think uh, I think you know you do only have to have two out of these particular four criteria met. And then, as Helen says, the bar is incredibly low. And I think anything that encourages people to maybe look at the makeups of 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 their crew, of their department heads, and whatnot is a good thing. And I don't think and because it is two out of the four, it doesn't even need to impact what you're portraying on screen. Mm-hmm. Like it can be an entirely sort of production led initiative. But I think it's it's good it's good working practice. I don't think there's anything really negative about yeah. this unless mm. you want to take it from that very Daily Mail perspective. I think the, the, only, the only danger here is that it's a lot easier for studios to pass this test, if you like, than it is for independent films because the studios can afford to pay to, to hire on several interns and meet that criteria immediately in a way mm. that might be more onerous for you know, smaller independent productions that don't have the money to hire X number of interns from from different categories. So I think th- there is a potential here for for studio films to find these easier to meet than than indie films. But at the same time, you know, hopefully they can think about it early enough, act early enough, and just build it into their to their system and into, into their filmmaking. Yeah, I mean it is a low bar, but I guess we, I guess the point is we'd probably be surprised at the amount of films that don't meet that criteria mm. and people don't think about this at all and just getting them to consider it is probably a, a big step forward for a vast amount of people yeah i agree speaking of films that are almost certainly going to be eligible for best picture though sasha baron cohen has apparently made borat 2 for my oh. benefit glorious cinema uh, well apparently it's been made already and uh, apparently there are people in the world who don't know Borat. <laughs> is he still going out in the world as Borat and just acting as if this is not a problem? I don't. Uh, well, where is this? Where is he making it? <laughs> the question surely is: Will you laugh so hard that you'll burst all the blood vessels in your face? <laughs> is it half the blood vessels? As, as famously, is it half the blood vessels? Half the blood vessels. Famously, Dan Jolin's Empire Review stated his five-star review of the first film. That, God, it's a very funny film. I haven't seen it since. Is it though? I haven't. It is. Well, not it for is, you because yeah. you don't like funny things. But yeah, <laughs> as, as comedies go, for it the was, rest it, of us, James. Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I loved it. I, I wonder, loved I wonder it. how it's aged. It was problematic at the time. I imagine now. It would be, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be run out of town with pitchforks uh, and torches. But uh, well, I'm sure that'll be a scene in in Borat too. Yeah, it probably will. Actually, someone shot footage. They were driving past Sasha Baron Cohen filming as Borat the other week in in L.A. Um, we know that he's been up to stuff. We know that he's been doing stuff, but I assumed it was for his his TV show. You know, Sasha Brown Cohen is is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant comic mind, and I am very excited to see what he does with this. Should it be true? It might not be true. There there are reports that the the the, the plot somehow uh, dips into Trump and Epstein's relationship. I don't know how the hell oh, you fit that Yikes. into a Borat film. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, Mike Pence and Rudy Giuliani have been said to feature somehow. Oh um, my god! I mean, look, Isn't uh, nice? um, <laughs> I'm always, always really up for seeing whatever Sasha Baron Cohen does. You know, you know, sometimes it's not as good as other times, but he's an incredibly inventive and very funny person. So bring it on. Mm. 
Bring it on. Anything else? There is, of course, Star Trek Discovery and Walking Dead news. Well, the Star Trek Discovery news. There's a trailer. There's a new trailer <laughs> of Star Trek Discovery, and The Walking Dead will be ending with season 11, except it's not really season 11 because they're making it 24 episodes and they're doing half of it next year and half of it the year after, which is essentially two seasons, but sure. But that makes sense anyway, because if you read the comics, that it, we're almost we're in the last story arc of the comics. So I've completely forgot to mention the Walking Dead stuff, um, which is which is interesting, don't you think? I thought mm. the the spin-off with Daryl and Daryl and Carol. Daryl and Carol. I hope it's like the furniture. Like, I hope it's a sitcom. <laughs> but is that because Norman Reedus just does not want to cut his hair? Is that basically and they've had to accommodate him by making by giving him his own show? Almost certainly. Almost yeah, certainly. Yeah, it seems, seems legit. Yeah. Do you think that robs the? Uh, do you think it robs season eleven of maybe some tension vis-a-vis Daryl and Carol? <laughs> I think. I think, <laughs> I think they. I think they've known all along that if they kill Daryl, everyone riots. So. I don't know if that's the case anymore. If though. anyone in that show is going to survive, it's going to be him. Oh, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> evidently. Um, so season 11 is going to be a, a mammoth behemoth season. What's happening with the Rick Grimes movie that was announced? A trilogy of Rick question. Grimes movies. Yeah. I don't know where they are at the moment. It all seems to have gone very, very quiet in that front. But then Fear the Walking Dead is still going. The new Walking Dead spinoff as yeah. later this year. So well beyond. Yeah. So there's still a lot of Walking Dead action going on. But the main story comes close. It makes sense because if, if they're following the arc of the comics, you have the one you have one storyline left, essentially. So uh, I guess they'll play that out and then that will be the end of it. But that, that storyline involves a character who's no longer in the TV show. It does. But then, but then so so have so many of them. So did the most recent one as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Because, I mean, you've only got Daryl and Carol are the only two original characters still around so mm. they've ju- they'll just recalibrate it for that what blows my mind and i was watching blade 2 the other day and i'd forgotten that norman reedus yeah. is yep. in blade 2 mm-hmm. and that looking almost exactly the same <laughs> yeah he, he doesn't much. really age <laughs> he hasn't changed at all no the one i'm really excited about from that announcement is tales of the walking dead which is the sort of oh. idea that you're going how have they not done this before this is such a good idea an anthology is show it? It really is. It allows it's him to explore. It's a terrible idea. It's not a ter- this is Freddy's terrible nightmares idea? with zombies. It allows him to explore, bring back different characters. So there's talk about you, know, you can you can you can maybe have a Shane episode and go way back into the past. Ooh, you I'm can bring back Jeffrey Demun, perhaps you, you, anyone who died, and everyone's dead pretty much. <laughs> that's um, everyone. Yes, you bring them back, or you have different shows set in different parts of the world so you don't get you know you're overwhelmed by the milieu of the walking dead shows is all very samey no matter how much they try and change it up with fear of the walking dead um it all kind of comes back to the same kind of thing so you could have you could have a show set you know with scientists or the president at the time that it all starts shit hits starts hitting the fan yeah it, all sorts of things all things are possible it might not be terrible that's all i'm saying in other TV news that's really important, Jensen Ackles is getting to keep Baby, which is the car in Supernatural. He's getting to keep the A car at the end of the show. Hang on, what does Jared get to keep? Presumably like the B car or something. It's it's appropriate. It it look, it's it's Dean's car. Dean gets to keep the car hundred percent. How hang on, it's not the same A car they've used all the way through the show though. Oh, they've used it, a bunch surely. of they've they've got a bunch of different cars, but like he is very attached to the car. Yeah, he is very <laughs> attached to he is getting like the beauty car that they use for the close up shots. He's very, very attached to it. He's he's on record as saying like he doesn't even like the Teamsters driving it to the set, which legally they have to do. Like he just <sighs> he, he can't have it. So he's getting to keep it at the end of the show. Oh, um, that's that nice. seems right. Yeah. So apparently MGM are developing a Robocop prequel series focusing on Dick Jones. Dick huh. Jones. And work for Dick Jones. This uh, uh, show will delve into his backstory. Now, at first glance, you think, well, that is 
as unnecessary as unnecessary things go. Um, mm. There was a quote from Ed Neumeyer, the who is developing it for MGM, hoping to make a pilot. He was the original screenwriter of Robocop. And there is a quote that says, it has all the cool stuff about Robocop, except no Robocop. So you think, <laughs> hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so this is scraping a barrel. But then he goes, he talks about the fact that this is about Dick Jones as a corporate predator. And he says, it's the story of OCP. And how the world moves into the future and how the corporate world behaves. And if you think about it, um, right. I think it's actually a really interesting landscape to explore. That sort of company, that sort of tech, um, those sort of uh, backstabbing corporate shenanigans is actually a pretty rich world. And yeah, it's it's a very spinny spin-off without, you know, shooty policemen in it. But actually, I think it probably is the basis for a really interesting social political um, action like future succession succession yeah. 2100 kind of thing with killer robots in it i mean why yeah. not oh my god Polly's robot is in robocop is in the dick jones spin-off <gasps> yes serve their public trust also given that um robocop itself like envisaged the privatization of you know mm. nursing and prisons mm. and things like that and that's basically all happened uh it does make a certain amount of dystopian sense to discuss it right now i think that's what he's talking about when he says all mm. the cool stuff about robocop you do think about the satire and you think about all, all that mm. very prescient stuff so i'm actually really intrigued by this amen we shall see we shall see how it pans out um maybe we'll get to see the old man as a young man who knows yeah but anyway, that is it for the news section. It is time now for this week's guest, and it is one heck of a guest. It is Ewan McGregor. Yes, indeed. Obi-Wan Kenobi himself. But he's not here to talk about one of his many, many movies. Oh, no, although we do talk about some of his films, obviously. Uh, instead, he is returning to the small screen with another series of the Long Way show. So there was Long Way Round and Long Way Down, shows in which he drove um, around the world with his best friend, Charlie Borman, on some motorbikes. The last show was Long Way Down. That was 13 years ago. Now they are back for Long Way Up. A lot has changed since then. They have got older. Charlie Borman has had two massive motorcycle accidents, which means riding on a motorcycle, especially a long, long motorcycle trip, is perhaps not the best idea. But nevertheless, they did it. The show will be on Apple on September 18th. So next week, it's going to be debuting on September 18th. It is very, very good. Very, very entertaining. I heartily recommend it. And uh, I caught up with you and he is and he was in LA. I caught up with him over Cisco WebEx, not Zoom, uh, last week. And sound quality dips in and out a little bit. This was beyond my control, I'm afraid. But hopefully it will still be uh, fun and enjoyable for you. Here's you, McGregor. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast in lockdown, of course, by the great Hugh McGregor. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks. I'm good. How's your lockdown been? Oh my goodness, it's been. Um, I've been very fortunate to be in a nice part of the in the world, and um, but it's uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been long, long, and uh, every day blending it like everyone else, just like everyone else's. Mm. You know, started off doing a lot of things around the place and. Had lots of projects that I've been, you know, putting off for years and years, and sort of did all of those, and then slowly just started getting a just one day blowing into the next, you know. <laughs> but I've had a lot of lovely time with my kids and um, with Mary, my partner, and it's been it's been in that respect, it's been lovely, and um, we've been lucky not to be touched by the actual virus or have close friends or family who have either. So we've been very lucky in that respect. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, long may that continue. And have you been, have you been working? Have you been keeping your, your, your hand in the till, so to speak? 
I have. I've done a few. Um, I've done quite a lot of voice stuff. Obviously, that's that's what we can do as actors from our from our homes. And I've got a, a little caravan where I've set my mic up and I sit in the caravan. I did a couple. Of, I did a narration for a um, Scottish natural history uh, series. I did quite a lot of. Um, I did a, a, all of the work for an animation. I think which I think has been released now. I got in trouble for mentioning it before, but I'm do I'm I'm voicing um, uh, uh, Jiminy Cricket in in Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and so Amazing. but I did that literally from my caravan. And 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 uh, and yeah, I, I, I always say too much about stuff, and I get in trouble later. You know, they're like, "Oh, you didn't, you're not meant to say that. You weren't meant to say you were in that." So anyway, I think it's okay. Uh, that's good. That's out there. We know that. That that's out there. Was a, there was a press release and everything. There was okay. there was much rejoicing in the streets. It, it was, it's I'm all allowed. Good. Okay. Good. 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 Um, how does Guillermo direct you if you're in a caravan? Um, through with the, you know just to, through the earphones. Yeah. It's kind of good. I mean, if you're, it's it's just sound. It's just audio anyway, isn't it? For a for a animation, it's just the voice anyway. So it sort of makes sense in a way, like that you can't see what you're doing, but. I guess they. I guess they. They. You know. They video. They video it. Uh, he can see you on. On. Um, he can see you on his laptop. I guess. And I think they record that for because for the animation they try and match some of your expressions and things. Uh, it should be good. That I really look forward to that because I'm sure the animation is going to be really beautiful and interesting. You know, he's such an amazing director, and I've known him for. I mean, just I remember meeting him years and years ago in New York after um, just after I saw Pan's Labyrinth. And being blown away by that, and then meeting such an imposing figure and a and a great, he's just a great one of those one of the great directors. You know, when you meet somebody, you just know they're the real deal, and he's self assured because he should be because he knows his stuff. He's a real talent. I really yeah. like him. Absolutely, and you know, you're right. He's such an imposing figure, but when you meet him, he's such a gregarious guy, and he's such a font of knowledge and wisdom. But he has this mischievous, almost filthy sense of humor as well. He's he's the whole the whole package. Yeah, yeah. He's a real, he's a true, you know, there's a handful of greats and he's one of them. And of course, I imagine you were working, you were finishing Long Way Up in post, I presume as well. You were doing voiceover and whatnot for it also. Yeah, we, we, we try not to do voiceovers. We've tried to record most of that on the way, you know, because okay. we try and keep it. Um, if we try and lift most of the um, voiceover stuff from the, from our bike, from the bikes. But if we can't, mm -hmm. then we did it down there. You know, we just do it on the, on the, on the road as we go along. Oh, sweet. Okay, excellent. Because I have to say, you know, I I have never ridden a motorbike in my life, Ewan, because i just terrified of falling off. But there are moments in the show, and in fact, in the previous ones as well, when you're watching you guys just buzzing along the road, and it looks like the best thing in the world. <laughs> and then there are moments where you're, <laughs> you're riding along a highway late at night, and the rain's whipping into your faces, and you look like you're, you're, you're this close to slipping... And I go fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> it is both of those things, though. It's true. There's moments when you're when it, when it's raining and it's cold. And the, the 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 thing about this trip is we started quite. We're not very good at the planning, Charlie and I. We're probably not very, you know, when it comes to actually decisions like when to start the journey and things like that. We might have made, waited a few weeks because it was still the dead of winter down there when we started. We got there and we got stuck in a hotel for four days because of snow. And we were thinking, okay, I don't know if this bodes well, really, for the beginning of the trip. Is 
were snowbound, you know, but there was a gap on the fifth day in the snow and we just bolted out of there. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, I've loved it always. And, and motorcycling is that, you know, there's, the, it's just the most glorious feeling. Um, and, the sort, and then there's some hardship involved in it too, you know, when it's raining and cold and everybody who rides a bike is, especially in Britain, is, is ridden in the rain. And, and I don't really mind it. As long as you've got the right, the right kit on, um, you're all right. You know, you can ride in the rain safely. It's not like, it's not like you're going to fall off every time you go around a corner. Um, you just ride differently. You ride more conservatively, perhaps in the rain, you know, but tires are good <laughs> these days and stuff like that. But it's just that it's just that on a long trip when you've got to get from A to B and it's freezing and you, you, you've just got to knuckle down and do it, you know, but it does, it looks bloody dangerous. I mean, do you, do you obviously doing what you do for a living? Do you have to, uh, do you have to get a special insurance, or or is it because you're in team projects that you can go? Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna go for it. I don't know. I mean, I think the I think there's. I mean, I have insurance, I guess, for myself, and then there's you know there's the production is insured, and I mean, for me, look, it's not. I think it's probably more dangerous to be riding around London on a motorbike because of traffic and cars and people. You know, at least in Britain and in Europe, there's a sort of motorcycle sense and people are aware of bikes. Um, riding, I'm in LA at the moment, riding here in America, you know, people there's people have less of a sort of aware, a, a motorcycle awareness, but the roads are wider and it's a bit more open out. So, um, but still, I think city riding is probably more dangerous than anything. You know, it can be, you can be bimbling a, a lot across the Sahara. It's pretty... If, you're going to, if you fall off, you're going to fall on sand. You know, it's not that dangerous, really. Um, which I did a lot of in our second trip. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I, but so I don't really consider it to be massive. Of course, you're more vulnerable than you are in a car. But um, I've just always done it. I've, I've ridden bikes since I was in my twenties, and I, I, I just love it. It's part of, it's really part of who I am. So I, I, I wouldn't uh, change anything about it. Uh, it's, it's nearly persuaded me to give it a go. It, it, it looks it looks bloody exhilarating, has, has to be said. What, and for a city, I don't know where you live, but for a city, you know, there's this whole new wave of electric scooters, not not stand-on scooters, but like a, like electric Vespa-type bikes. And there's a whole range of like two-wheeled fun to be had out there that doesn't have to be, you know, getting on a big motorcycle. You can, that, that, that in a city is pretty good fun. How does a motorbike fraternity look upon stabilizers you and okay you might have to you might have to practice in a park a car park somewhere before and get rid of those you might be if you're on your little electric scooter and stabilizers that might be a, a step too far you know one of the great things about the, the show as well is the fact that you know this is you and charlie getting back together again and it's, it's not necessarily that you've rekindled your friendship but you do say early on that the two of you had kind of fallen out of contact and i, I get that you know as, as people get older priorities change and sometimes friendships fall by the wayside a little bit is that kind of where you guys found yourselves we did the first two trips quite close together and they're so intensive for a french you know for any for friendship, for us, like we, it was, it's, it's all day for four, four and a half months. The first trip was, and you know, you're making decisions together. You're, you're dealing with the elements together. There's the sort of stress of not getting places on time, or are we going to get there? Are we lost? All of those things is a test of any friendship, really. And um, we came out of them really both very well, I thought. And then it was just after the second trip, I moved to the states, and. Um, Charlie ended up doing a lot more. He you know he made some other TV shows, uh, travel shows on his own. 
And he also started doing these big rides. He goes, you know, he rides with a group of people who who go and do sort of overland adventures with him in um, Australia and uh, South Africa and all over the place. And so he, every time I would be in London working, he was just never there. He was always away. So we just sort of, we never lost touch, lost touch. We were always, mm-hmm. you know, we still called each other up now and again, but we wasn't quite as, we weren't as close as we had been. And then he had this terrible accident. He was in um, Portugal. He was doing a, he was working with Triumph motorcycles and they were launching this new bike and he was there with some journalists and uh, he was overtaking a car and the car start, turned left while he was overtaking it and um, sort of chased him around and then it clipped him and it threw him off the bike into a wall and he broke, it was so, he broke his, he really, really damaged his legs badly, broke his uh, arm and his wrist and um, he was in a terrible mess and we, we got the, all got the call, you know, from somebody that works with Charlie and then managed to get hold of Ollie and then I phoned Charlie's mobile and I got, um, I got somebody answered his mobile, but it was, a, it was someone from Triumph and he was saying, oh, Charlie's in surgery. And then all of us just didn't know. It was just that moment of when somebody's got really in, in a bad crash and you don't know quite where they are, how they're going to be, and, and nobody's able to tell you. And Charlie was... Uh, was then in recovery from that terrible uh, operation for about uh, a crash for about two years or something. He was recuperating. Mm. And so it was just, it was certainly during that time that I just thought, you know, uh, it was that thing where you feel like you might have lost somebody very special to you. And um, I just, I just realized I can't, you know, you mustn't let these important relationships in your life drift. You know, you've got to, make sure that you look after them. And uh, it just brought us closer together again. And then whenever I was in London, I would go and see him um, if he was, and because of course then he was around, he wasn't traveling the world anymore because he was, he was in a wheelchair in his front room, you know, with a bed in his living room. And he would just, yeah. he was so funny though. He was still the Charlie that we, we all know and love. That was the most, one of the most amazing things about him is that he didn't sort of let it um, define him or it didn't, it didn't let him, uh, he just he just started looking forward, and it was a long recovery. But we saw a lot of each other then. Then I would stay with him when I was in London, and then Russ and Dave came over, our producers, and we started looking at maps. And then one thing led to another, and we when we started thinking about doing this third trip. Suddenly, you find yourself in South America. By it's like it's like with and I, we've 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 come to South America by mistake. <laughs> What are we doing? What are we doing here? <laughs> we want fine wine and cakes. Um, <laughs> but uh, perhaps you and I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to me that also you are in a slightly reflective part of your career. I mean, you know, going back to Train Spotting, for example, Christopher Robin and Dr. Sleep are both about characters kind of coming to terms with their past as well. You know, you're going back to Obi-Wan Kenobi, hopefully in the, in the not too distant future as well. And then there's this as well, obviously picking back up with, with Charlie again. Uh, so are you consciously looking back are you consciously reflecting or am i reading far too much into it oh no well i i when you say it like that it really sounds like i am um but i hadn't thought about it that way there's a certain there's a certain uh, aspect of age that just the roles become i wouldn't have thought doctor do you mean doctor sleep because it's a sequel mm. to the shine is shining as, as yeah. it were and also, Dan, you know, Dan Torrance is a man who's come to terms coming with his to terms past. Coming to terms with his past, yeah. yeah. I'm just at that age where I'm, I'm you know, I'm old enough. <laughs> I'm old enough now to, to play people who have 
you know, fucked up their lives and are trying to put it back together again. <laughs> 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 but, you know, um, just I'll be 50 next year. And uh, I think it's something to do with age. I mean, and I also think the industry is just... Well, you know, the industry is making films that they just want people to go to the... Well, not, not people are not going to the cinema at the moment, but they want people to watch films to make money. And so, therefore, they think, well, if we just... If we keep making sequels to films, the product name is already out there, then, you know, so, so newer ideas, newer original stories are harder and harder to find. There's just the whole, the whole industry is sort of awash with sequels and films based on other films. And it just mm. seems to be the way it is at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, th- that's, a, that's a fair point. But the Star Wars thing is different. The Star Wars um, project's different in that uh, it's been... It's just been a long time, and it's been a long time coming in terms of me speaking with them about it, and and now sort of in development with them on it. And it's it is, I don't know. I think it's true to say that I'm sort of more excited about doing this one than than I, certainly I'm more excited about doing this one than I was doing the second and third one that we did before. Because <laughs> 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 I because I'm just I'm just excited about um, working with Deborah and. Um, Deborah Chow and the and the storylines are going to be really good, I think. And I'm just I'm excited to play him again. I don't know. It's been it's been long enough since I played him before, and and for me to sort of also appreciate the 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 you know our films came out and they weren't much liked when they came out uh, by mm. the by the people who the gen, my generation who loved the first ones. I think the people of our generation wanted to feel the way they'd felt when they saw those first three movies when they were kids and George wanted to take the R ones in a sort of different direction. He had a different idea. And, um, I don't know. It was, it was tricky at the time. I remember, but now this, this, all these years later, now I'm, now I'm really aware of what our films meant to you know, the, the, the generation they were sort of made for, which was the children of the, of the, at that time. And they really like them, so I've I'm sort of I've I've met people who really they mean a lot to them those films, you know, and they more so than the original three. And I'm like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? But they they really like them, and so I don't know. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm 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 more excited about it in a way. And I've also you know there's that young British sort of cocky swaggery '90s bullshit that we all had, and and that and I've sort of grown up a bit, you know. And it was cool to be sort of not into that kind of, you know, the big Hollywood. It was cool to sort of be dismissive of it at the same time doing it, you know. So, um, and now I'm just much more even about my, about the work I do. And I, I, you know, I loved doing the, the um, Christopher Robin movie because it's nice to do films. I loved that film because it was my friend Mark who directed it and he's got such an interesting sort of um, take on things. And we made a film that was, yes, a Winnie the Pooh film, but also quite a, sort of ble- had bleakness in it. Was it was dark. It was dark all over the place. Yeah. And about a man struggling to find himself. And and, and I, I just lo- I loved the, that he was able to do that. And I've watched that. I watched that film with all of my kids in different places. I remember watching it with Clara and um, Esther, who are, you know, Clara's in her 20s and Esther's uh, 18. And we watched it in New York City. And then I watched it with my nine-year-old here in L.A. in the afternoon. And I watched it with Jamian. 
I forget where I watched it with Jeremy, but it felt like a different movie every time I watched it with a different age group or a different one of my different children or different yeah. time of the day. It was very interesting how he managed to do that. It is, it's, it's really dark. It's a man having a nervous breakdown, but with Winnie the Pooh, with Winnie uh, the Pooh. by his side. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that that's, so the fact that that's, you know, I've been a dad for 24 years and I, 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 I like, I like the fact that, that you can work in, do good work for um, children to enjoy. Well, I mean, why, why not? So the fact that we can do this Star Wars series, I'm also really excited about, and again, I'm terrified I'm going to say too much. I don't know what I'm, <laughs> I'm now just sitting here thinking, what am I meant to say? What am I not meant to say? But I think some of the technology that we're going to use is going to make it more exciting to shoot than um, the th first three I did were really at the very beginning of digital um, photography. Yeah. Like we were, we had a camera with an umbilical cord to a tent it was like it was like back to the beginning of movies, you know, where everything was, the camera didn't move very much because there was so much hardware attached to it. Amazing. But now we're going to be able to really um, create stuff without swathes of green screen and blue screen, which becomes very tedious for the actor. I know you can't say anything about what you're going to do as Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan, but can you tell the people, the fans, that we will see Elan Sleaze-Bagano, who is the guy who tries to sell Obi-Wan death sticks in the, uh, in the bar in Attack of the Clones? I want to know what happened to that guy. Well, I, I would imagine he's probably not with us anymore because he was a real... He's probably died of lung cancer somewhere along the line. But I, know, I, don't, want to, I don't want to say because I don't know. Well, maybe we'll bring him back. I don't know. Maybe he should be in a hospital or something or going by in a sort of hover wheelchair, wheezing away, you know? You don't want to sell me death sticks. That's what, that's what he says. He says, I want to sell you. You want to buy some death sticks? That's what he says. But, I remember um, his face as he said it. You're very good at him. <laughs> oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. You're, I'm sure you're equally good at Obi-Wan, uh, by the way. Uh, but Ewan, it's been a pleasure, sir. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, man. Take Excuse care. Excuse me. Take care. That was Ewan McGregor. And yes, indeed, The Long Way Up is available on Apple Plus or on Apple TV next Friday, September 18th. Check it out. And I cannot wait for him to return as Obi-Wan Kenobi. But now it is time to talk about the movies that you can watch, some in cinemas, some on your sofaplex this week. And we're going to start with a film that is out in cinemas and actually opened last week. We're going to start with Les Miserables, which is not an adaptation of the musical, which must have been a huge disappointment to James Dyer. But what is it? Tell us about this movie, Jimbo. I have to be honest, this this did take me rather by surprise. I thought the songs were disappointing. <laughs> uh, I thought Jean Monster. Valjean was horribly miscast. It just wasn't really what I want from an Andrew Lloyd Webber adaptation on it's any level. A, it's not an Andrew uh, Lloyd Webber musical. <laughs> is it not? Who's it? Oh, <laughs> no, you're right. It's not. It's <laughs> oh my god! It's not at all. Well, that explains why it all went wrong. Um, yes, no. This, of course, isn't Helen. I'm going to need your help with a little bit of pronunciation. This okay. is the new film from. How do you pronounce it? Lajli. Lajli. I guess I'm not sure. Lajli. Yeah. Lajli. Famously a documentarian, but this is, to all intents and purposes, a French training day in many ways. Uh, and it stars. It focuses around a new sort of rookie cop called Stéphane, which is Damien Bonnard, and he's transferred to this anti-crime squad. Bosquet, uh, which is a little bit like a cross between Alonzo Harris's crew and Vic Mackey's crew from The Shield. And they work <laughs> a an estate in eastern Paris. In fact, it's set in Montfermeil, which is where Les Mis is set. And it does reference the Victor Hugo story as well. Although I cannot emphasize enough, this is not a modern day reimagining. <laughs> um, 
But essentially, these three cops go about their day and try and deal with the sort of melting pot of sort of uh, uh, of uh, of Roma uh, carnival people there. There's a black community. There's the Muslim Brotherhood in there. There are a lot of different factions. It's a bit sort of like the temperature is literally rising, so tempers are fraying. Uh, and in many ways, it's kind of police versus the local inhabitants of this estate. But it's shot beautifully it's got a real kinetic camera work in it there's a lot of handheld and it's a lot of drone footage both as part of the plot and also part of the filmmaking technique this film has so much energy to it and it's so bold and it's it has an awful lot to say obviously about the the social strata of this environment that's in but it's just really really well put together i was completely enthralled from this from top to bottom uh, and i really didn't expect to be to be honest because again i can't emphasize enough there aren't any songs in it uh but really 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 <laughs> good this was uh this was i want to say uh what festival was it venice no it was can was a jury prize at can mm. jury prize at can mm. i want to say last year but really 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 good yeah it's taken yeah. a long time to get here it, it has, has taken a long time to get here but and i did you know i'm not familiar with any of the actors in this i've not seen any of them before damien bernard looks a lot like michael imperioli but uh, other than that <laughs> it's taken a longer time to get here because of covid it was supposed to be out yeah, a few yeah. months ago to be fair yeah. Yeah. yeah i think uh, bonar is probably the, the closest thing to to a star in it although if there's any um justice then uh, jebril zonga would become a star after this i think he's extraordinary as guada he's very good yeah. um i love this I, it has real real echoes of la n which is of course also mm. on re-release uh, recently but it's a mm. it, it feels like there's a huge debt uh, in some ways, to line, or maybe it's just a similarity of of place and of subject matter. Um, but it really, really does recall that, and it's. But it also has a, a elements of do the right thing, just in terms of the, mm. the rising temperature and the rising tension, and the way that it sort of builds and builds um, as it goes. Um, also, really uh, impressive performance from Issa Perica as Issa, who I assume is a newcomer, um, but he is. Uh, he's he's just incredible here. Yeah, it's one of the kids. Yeah. I also shout out to Alexi Menenti, who plays Chris, the kind of Alonzo. Harris character mm. who's a slightly racist unpleasant oh, coffin very but, racist yeah he's, he's, he's pretty racist but again it's, he's, he's hateable but really nails that performance mm. yeah he does it's the best of the films I think well Painted Bird is pretty good too but yes indeed so we gave this one four stars in fact uh, spoiler alert we gave everything four stars this week so Les Miserables uh, four stars for that and next up we have the return of the brilliant director Sally Potter Sally Potter uh, she is indeed the chosen one she survived battling Voldemort she's back with no. another movie it is The Roads Not Taken Helen Idaho please tell us about this movie yeah, this is um, an interesting one from her. It's very personal, I think, to her. So she nursed her brother through early onset dementia. And I think this is a sort of a, a way to work through that that experience, that wrenching loss of someone when they're, when they're right there with you. But Javier Bardem plays a man who is kind of disappearing within himself. Uh, Elle Fanning is his daughter. And she's mm. just, it's a normal day. She's trying to basically take him to the dentist and the optometrist and then home again so she can get to work. That's That's sort of the plot to the extent that there is. And he is not so much there as he is off in his own head imagining what life might have been like if he'd stayed with his childhood sweetheart who's played by Salma Hayek mm. or if he'd um if he'd left his family if he'd left Elle and her mother Laura Linney um when she was born and, and gone off to be a writer in Greece. But all of his sort of fancy life and real life keeps sort of becoming imperfect. Uh mm. keep, you know grief keeps creeping in, uh, imperfection keeps creeping in, and, and it feels like he's falling apart on the inside. And, and on the outside, you have Elle desperately trying to connect with him, desperately trying to look after him. Um, 
just being uh, having this real bond, trying to make this bond with him. She feels incredible love for him, and she's she's trying to sort of hold on to him as long as she can. So it's really moving in that sense. But it's not an easy film because it is pretty bleak in some ways. You know, he's not going to come yeah. back from this. There's no getting through it. Um, there is only sort of that, that gradual decclin. Yeah. yeah, really is. Uh, but the performances are great, aren't they? I mean, they're just are fantastic, as you would yeah. expect from Sally Potter and from all of this cast. Yeah, yeah, and unsentimental. I thought mm, very much so. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not an, always an easy watch, but it is one that is that is worthwhile. It is a very human story. Absolutely. Uh, we gave this one four stars as well. As I said, we gave everything four stars this week. The Road's Not Taken. Uh, that is out. It's going to be out in cinemas this weekend, uh, as indeed is Les Miserables. Uh, and as indeed is The Painted Bird. I think The Painted Bird is also available digitally as well. In fact, they probably all are. Go and check them out. Uh, so this is The Painted Bird, and this is another four star one. And this is a three near three hour black and white treatise on the horrors of war. So naturally... Alex Godfrey, the man with the tash, it falls to you to tell us about this movie. Yes, talking of bleak and uh, not easy, this is, I mean, oh my God. I mean, yeah. I've seen this, I absolutely completely love this film because I it's beautiful and completely captivating, but this is as horrific as things get. I mean, it's it's about, it's a it's 1940s Eastern Europe and it's basically a young boy being run out of town and, and then another town and then another town and the horrors that, are thrown at him are just the basically the worst things that you can imagine happening to a human and this is a boy i mean look it begins with him with him being chased you you it opens he's being run around his pet ferret is being urinated on it's then set onto fire and burned to death that's the beginning of the film and it goes uh, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse from there for two and a half hours until it finishes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as I was watching, I wrote, this is a biblical coming of age in hell. I mean, it's really insane. There are images in this film that you will not forget if you can even bear to watch them. I mean, he's buried up to his neck in the ground while crows peck away at his blooded head. There's a cat licking out a gouged out human eye. I mean, Udo Kier is in it, which should set off some alarm bells in itself. He's (laughs) absolute terror on legs in this film. Um, You know, there's, there's a shot of him just sitting there getting quietly furious while in the background two cats have sex and it's terrifying (laughs) Um, you know, a, a village is, is pillaged. Um, mm. It is extraordinary, but you you kind of really, really feel it. It's a it's mm. beautifully shot in black and white. There are it's very very painterly. It is it is genuinely gorgeous to watch. I think it's very lyrical. There are flawless uses of contrast and lights and light and shadows. And even though you're just seeing this cavalcade of horror. You kind of, I don't know, it's so, it's not like a human centipede thing. It, it's, there's something detached about the way yeah. it's filmed, but there's something very emotional about watching it. And it's kind of, I mean, I don't want to give away what it's, what it's really about, but despite everything I've just said, it doesn't feel gratuitous and it doesn't feel exploitative. And you really feel for everything that's going on. And, and by the time it finishes, you kind of, I mean, I felt a real catharsis and sadness about it. And um, I know a lot of people think it's just too nihilistic and too nasty, but I mean, that's not what I took from it. Helen, what did you, what did you think? Yeah, I think, I think there's enough kind of beauty and maybe, well, hope is a strong word, but, but something in it, there's, there's enough feeling in it that you can kind of get through it. But you could almost, I mean, apart from the, 
the straight up horrors you could frame any any shot in this film and it would be incredible like looking it's it is as you say absolutely beautiful and i think that does help you watch it in some ways mm. like almost like it gives your eyes a rest every now and again mm. in a strange way and it, and again great performances i mean not just to look here but uh you've got stellan skarsgård in there harvey keitel in there playing very much against type for him um it's it's an extraordinary yeah. film I, I don't ever want to sit through it again but i'm glad that i watched it i did sit through it again uh, we wow. haven't mentioned the director I mean, this is it is directed by the Czech Republic's Václav Marhol. Forgive my pronunciation. I mean, it's adapted from Jerzy Kaczynski's 1965 novel. There was some controversy about that because it was claimed at the time to be autobiographical, since I think debunked. But I don't know if that's important when you watch the film. It's a it's mm. a brilliant story, and there is so much evil in this film. It's like, and when there are glimmers of goodness and people being kind to him, it's such a relief. Yeah, um, it's it's an extraordinary piece of work. Yes, indeed. We gave this one four stars, four stars then for The Painted Bird. And that is it on that optimistic, uplifting note. That is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by the director and star of one of my favourite films of the year, the incredible British movie, Rocks. So that's mm. Sarah Gavron and Bucky Bakray. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible film uh, that I heartily recommend. And that's going to be on next week's show. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye. From Helen Idaho. Toodaloo. It is goodbye from the man with the tash, Andre Sitar. Why have you called yourself Andre Sitar? Because oh, I had five seconds. I, I haven't used Squadcast in ages. It said, what's your name? I thought, uh, I don't know, something from Tenet, but something hilarious and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarity and Tenet did not go well. Uh, you know, you can't mess your hands <laughs> together true. when you're doing that. No, no. Uh, it is goodbye from Inspector Chauvet, James goodbye, Dyer. And it's goodbye from me, Chris Hewitt. I'm off to do a massive jump off a motorcycle ramp. Hopefully you guys have packed a parachute for me, right? Uh, sure. Okay. Sounds good. I'm all on board. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.